AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T ThreatTrack for November 11th, 2014. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. We're joined today by John Hugaboom. Welcome, John. Uh, thanks for having me again. Yeah. Matt Kaiser. And Matt, as I said, I will try not to call you Stan today. That's okay, Frank. <laughs> okay. We all want to uh, be Stan, actually, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, Jim Clausing online. Welcome, Jim. Thanks. Yeah. And I'm Brian Rexrode, and uh, just a quick reminder, uh, although this will be coming out a little bit later, the, uh, today is Veterans Day as we record here, and it's a good opportunity to thank folks that put themselves in harm, harm's way to protect us. And although, you know, we're obviously concerned about cybersecurity here, that certainly is not the same type of harm's way, but it's certainly something we need to be paying attention to, it, in fact, in terms of uh, national security interests. So, uh, John, you were looking at a uh, new APT activity that has a little bit of a different slant. I guess perhaps it's not even so new, but we're learning more about it. Right, we're learning more about it. So this one, we actually got some, well, everybody uh, got kind of a universal tip-off from the FBI uh, mm -hmm. as well as the IC3 uh, that this type of activity was going on. Kaspersky has since put out a paper yesterday. It's a pretty detailed report. They also have an indicators report that mm -hmm. goes along with it that's some 50 plus pages. So wow. it's pretty pretty detailed uh, amount of data. So it's definitely worth reading, but I'll give you kind of the highlights about this. So uh, this particular activity is about uh, hotels and travelers traveling abroad, mm -hmm. going to hotels and getting compromised uh, in the process. Mm -hmm. There's some really interesting aspects of this though. So. This particular campaign is targeting uh, very specific individuals, CEOs, senior VPs of large companies, tech companies. Mm -hmm. And I have a list of all the types of areas that were targeted there, defense industrial base, some governmental organizations, pharmaceutical. We see a lot of those things targeted mm -hmm. in the nation state uh, type target activity. The other interesting aspect of this is that it's for the most part targeting Asia PAC type targets. So Japan, uh, is the lion's share in that pie right. chart there. It's uh, in dark blue. Uh, and then you have Taiwan, there's some China, some Russia, Korea, account for probably more than 75, 80% of all of the victim population here. And then there's some other, you know, smattering in some other countries here. The, uh, the tactics that they're using here is the real interesting thing that we haven't, we kind of got some hinting about this, uh, but there's a lot more detail that Kaspersky has uncovered in part of their analysis. Mm -hmm. So the first thing is the attacker has some sort of persistent access inside various hotels. Right. So they have access, they have some set of tools that are available, not necessarily deployed, mm -hmm. uh, but within that uh, hotel space. They also believe they probably have access to the um, hotel registry information. Uh, because mm. the, they never target an individual until they arrive. Mm. Uh, so they know who they're looking for and when they're going to arrive at the hotel. And that's the only time that the actual infection right. will manifest itself. But apparently um, no details on how they get that access at this point. No, right? not yet. Uh, no details that I saw in the report about how they, um, how they get and maintain that access. Mm -hmm. um, in Kaspersky's analysis, they actually tried to go to some of these hotels where these compromises occurred, 
to uh, deploy honeypots to see if they could lure some infections to themselves, but they mm -hmm. couldn't, mm -hmm. which is another good indication that whoever is behind this activity is very focused. They, they only want you know X, Y, and Z person. Right. They don't want everybody uh, at this type of thing. So they know when the person logs in. As you're probably familiar with these hotels, when you go to get the Wi-Fi, you put in maybe your last name and your hotel room number uh, mm -hmm. on some kind of portal there. Well, that's actually how they've detected that this infection kind of manifests. So the attacker will put in some specific stuff there so that when that user with that room number tries to get access to the Wi-Fi, they will uh, inject an iframe into the response that will spin up a thing that says, hey, there's a new Adobe update that you need to install or maybe something else like Google Toolbar. Mm -hmm. They look somewhat semi-authentic. They also do a lot of certificate forging and signing and stuff as well. Uh, so there's a lot of craftiness going on here. So if they can coerce the user to install that false update, then they'll drop some additional tools like key loggers, some things to you know uh, uh, grab the passwords that might be in your browser cache if you use the auto save your password stuff, mm -hmm. which I would not recommend anybody to do. The other interesting thing is once they're done getting what they want from that person, they will very carefully remove the tools, not necessarily from the victim's machine, but from the hotel network. So whoop, mm. they just pull everything back out again so that if somebody does go to inspect the hotel network's you know, uh, Wi-Fi portal access that they it's have, not it's not obvious. Right. Um, the other interesting aspect of this is that the tools that they're using have been seen in these target attacks, but have also been seen deployed in indiscriminate types of uh, activities on peer-to-peer -peer networks. So they'll seed in some you know, files that are on peer-to-peer -peer networks with some mm -hmm. malware, and it's been in there. So there's a little weird cross overlap. We've seen some things like that. You know, we know we've seen Zeus being used in some of these other toolkits as kind of the initial infection vector. They'll do like kind of a spray and pray, and then look and see who they actually got, and then maybe keep and recruit that person to some elevated espionage activity or something okay. like that. That's, so there's a little weird overlap there that was interesting as well. I did mention there is an advisory that came out in 2012 uh, from the FBI. Uh, this is a public advisory, kind of warning about this kind of activity. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's an interesting tactic. I, th I thought it was interesting because it's very sneaky. Um, they're specifically targeting very specific people mm -hmm. when they visit a hotel and probably only certain hotels, very high you know, uh, high whatever, rate. high rate hotels, you know, right. types of things like that, that a CEO might visit and whatnot. Hmm. Um, and then uh, the, the, uh, the last thing I was going to mention is, you know, what you might want to consider uh, from an awareness perspective when you're traveling abroad, some things that I would recommend, you know, use a VPN service. Not right. necessarily good. You're still going to connect to Wi-Fi initially, but once you get the VPN, at least all your communication will be encrypted, you'll probably be going through your company network and back out again. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, it's, it, it, I mean, it's it, it's good to understand what your circumstances are when you use a corporate VPN. Some corporate VPNs will let the internet traffic go directly to the internet. But I guess from a security standpoint, it is recommended that corporate VPNs actually tunnel that traffic to the corporate gateways, and then you can have the benefit of the security you know, controls that are in place right. using the basically the corporate perimeter in that case. But right. it, it's a good recommendation, but there are some differences depending on how the corporate VPNs are set up. Right. And you still need to get onto the Wi-Fi. Right. So when you first boot your computer up, you're going to have to, you know, get into the hotel's Wi-Fi portal, access that Wi-Fi. So you want to be careful, and that's my second one is there, 
you know, whenever you're traveling, always be wary if you're at a hotel and all of a sudden you get a pop-up that says, hey, there's a new, even if it looks legitimate, hey, there's mm -hmm. a new update for Adobe or Java or whatever, uh, just you might want to wait until mm -hmm. you get back home. Right. Because um, uh, we know that this behavior has been going on uh, in some hotels, or at least mm -hmm. now we're getting a little more awareness around it. You know, the other thing I'd recommend is ensure that you have your AV is a good AV solution that's pretty robust in detecting you know, emerging threats, mm -hmm. uh, but also make sure it's up to date before you leave and you go traveling. And then the other thing that we kind of recommend, and, and in some cases I know a lot of people do this, is consider using a burner laptop when you're traveling, mm -hmm. especially abroad uh, in countries that you might, we might not have really great relationships with. Right. So that way you can just take a laptop that doesn't really have a lot of sensitive information, but allow you to at least get back to the your, your email and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Then when you get back to the US, turn it into your IT guys, maybe they just wipe it or do whatever. Uh, but if there is some kind of infection there, hopefully you'll be uh, protected. You still might want to change your passwords afterwards, mm -hmm. but it's a lot better than taking you know, your regular laptop. Try to limit the, the potential for damage if, right. uh, if something does take place. So is there anything about it, is this associated with a particular group, or is it is this sort of a class of activity that's been identified? So I looked at some of the domain names uh, that they mentioned in their command and control. They look somewhat familiar. Uh, it looks very China nation state oriented mm -hmm. to me. Uh, this is not, I don't have any concrete information okay. on that. They don't label it. I didn't see in their information labeling it as like an APT-1 or an APT-28. You know, they have the mm -hmm. different... Uh, various groups that different organizations have named, like Mandy and, what, and whatnot. Um, I, I didn't see that in particular in this one, but it looks like it's probably originating from that kind of space, from what okay. I can tell. Makes sense. So I, I guess just in terms of practices as well, you know, limit what you do when you go on a trip. Uh, in terms of uh, you know what kinds of accesses you're performing, if you don't need to get access to the corporate network, then why bother? And uh, you mentioned laptop here, I guess, it might make sense to do the same sort of uh, practices with a mobile device, right? Mobile device uh, when well. uh, traveling, traveling abroad as well. Yeah. Uh, in fact, it, it, you know, if you really want to use it as a learning exercise, there's a potential to just use a uh, what you refer to as a burner device, a sacrificial device, and bring it back, and then maybe put it through some forensics analysis to see if there are any indications that there was a, any tampering going on, right? Yeah. I want to second the uh, idea of the burner, you know, the, the sacrificial one. Um, we've heard anecdotal reports of folks going into some particular, you know, foreign countries, and when they're going through customs, you know, the device disappears from their presence for some period of time and can get infected. Then if you've got a device that doesn't have any critical data on it, then you know, then you're not going to risk losing anything. Right. Yeah, that's Absolutely. exactly what I was just about to mention. <laughs> okay. And uh, I guess we'd also recommend is make sure the device you're taking is already patched, right? Yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so, Jim, maybe you can tell us a little bit about some of the patching that's coming around. <laughs> yeah. Today is uh, Microsoft Patch Tuesday, and um, this month was a, a very busy month. We've had some months this year where we only had you know, three or four bulletins out of Microsoft. This month we got 14, plus two more numbers that had been assigned that, um, that the bulletins didn't come out today. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not 
clear exactly what, you know, whether they got pulled at the last minute, but um, Microsoft's uh, monthly summary says for MS14-068 and-075, it says release date to be determined. Hmm. So um, I'm not sure exactly what happened there, whether those will come out before Patch Tuesday next month or, or what the deal is. But there were 14 bulletins that were released. Four of them Microsoft rates as critical, uh, a couple of them that they only rate as important that I probably would rate a little higher because of potential remote code ex execution. But mm -hmm. the ones that really jumped out at me when I was glancing through these were um, MS14-064 fixes the OLE vulnerability that we talked about last month was partially patched, so MS14-064 supposedly finishes the job. MS14-065 is the Internet Explorer uh, update, and this one covers 17 CVEs, so there are a whole bunch of uh, vulnerabilities that are patched by this one. For those CVEs, is there, is there a theme around them, or do they just seem to be kind of all over the place? Uh, they're pretty much all over the place. Okay. Um, the monthly uh, Internet Explorer cumulative things, you know, there can be any number of any number of things that they found in the last month. But mm -hmm. a lot of them are remote code ex execution. There are also some uh, security feature bypass, some elevation of privileges. No, no real theme, but there are lots of vulnerabilities covered by this one. If I can digress for just a moment here, I think this is uh, a, just a good demonstration of this. Uh, you know, there's a bit of a notion that as we go to virtualized systems, that uh, it's really kind of what some people have referred to it as sort of reverting to the mainframe days where you put all of your assets and security in the central mainframe and then the end user's device be basically becomes an end, you know, a dumb terminal again. And uh, I think that analogy is kind of fun to entertain, but when you start looking at the complexity of browsers and just, you know, even your simplest, most simple and user device really is still significantly more complex than anything that we equated to a dumb terminal in the past. And I think just the uh, the fact that you have 17 CVEs just associated with a a particular browser, not to mention all the apps that might be included on a on an end device. But anyway, I, as I mentioned, a, a little bit of a tangent, a digression. Yep. Just uh, felt no. compelled to point that out. <laughs> oh, exactly. A couple of the other bulletins today that caught my attention, um, MS14-066 is adding some TLS 1.2 support to S-channel, which is a, not something that I've actually used myself, but it's apparently um, some Microsoft secure channel communication, uh, so they've added some new some TLS stuff to that, probably mm -hmm. It didn't say that they eliminated any of the SSL V3, which we've talked about uh, in previous shows, some recent issues with that. So I don't know if that's handled here or whether they previously did that or whether that's something they'll do in a future mm -hmm. update. 
there was a bulletin MS-14-069 that uh, dealt with some remote code execution vulnerabilities in Office 2007, and there's still an awful lot of Office 2007 out there, so mm -hmm. you know, folks using that in your enterprise probably want to look at that bulletin. MS-14-074, um, remote desktop protocol authentication bypass issue, and so if you've got terminal servers, you definitely want to be looking at that. The other thing that I did want to highlight here, um, Microsoft in on one of their uh, security uh, blog posts yesterday um, mentioned a new release of EMET, E-M-E-T, Enhanced Mitigation, Experience I don't remember now what it stands for. Yeah, Experience um, Toolkit, I think. Enhanced, yeah. mi okay. Enhanced Mitigation, Enhanced mitigation experience, experience Toolkit, I believe. That's what it is, yes. Anyway, they they updated that to version 5.1 yesterday, mm -hmm. and you might want to apply that update before you apply patches if you're running Internet Explorer 11 on Windows 7 or Windows 8.1. Uh, one of the notes in their release notes was that part of the reason for releasing 5.1 was they had found um, uh, compatibility issues with Internet Explorer 11 and the November bunch of Internet Explorer patches in that uh, in bulletin MS14-065 that we just talked okay. about. This is definitely a busy month if you've got Windows in your enterprise. Lots and lots of bulletins, lots of patches. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, it, it, now, do you have any idea if it, this is going to elongate the patching process because there are a lot of patches involved in it? In, in an enterprise, if you're doing testing of these before you're deploying them, you know, certainly that's going to increase that yeah. amount of time. Right. Just the, the sheer number of um, you know, bulletins and the number of patches uh, this month, you know, it's going to take some time to... And most, several of these do require a reboot, so, mm -hmm. um, you know, you're going to have your whole, uh, all your workstations are going to be taking some time doing the downloading and doing their usual reboot Wednesday deal. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, just uh, just uh, a comment on the RDP authentication bypass. Mm -hmm. I uh, took a look to see if there was any notable increase in activity, perhaps probing for RDP devices. Uh, it's not included as a part of the weather report. I didn't generate a graphic on it. And uh, predominantly that's because I didn't see anything that was particularly notable at this point, but perhaps as uh, time goes on, there may be some notable changes. Invariably in cases like this where we see, you know, an authentication bypass like that for something that might be exposed to the internet, either Especially inadvertently RDP. or on purpose, they tend to show up in, uh, in our activity. So. Uh, nothing really notable so far. Uh, there's still a lot of probing that's going on there anyway, uh, but uh, we'll see if that changes over time. Yeah, it's, I'd certainly keep an eye on it for the next few days, you know, since this just got announced today, uh, once the bad guys have a chance to reverse engineer the patch. All right. You know, we, we could certainly see some of that in the next couple of days. Okay. I would be curious to know the origin of that particular exploit to know if that was 
discovered on their own. The hard way. Or discovered as a zero day right. by somebody else, right? possibility. And yeah, the, the acknowledgments on that particular um, bulletin don't, you know, don't uh, give credit to any particular individual. Um, it just says they recognize the efforts of those in the community who help us protect customers mm -hmm. through responsible disclosure. So, yeah. Okay. Read into that whatever you will. <laughs> right. Okay. Thank you, Jim. And uh, so let's go over to Matt. And Matt, um, I guess, you know, we didn't talk specifically about patching on the mobile devices here, but uh, I think um, possibly there's a opportunity to patch against your will. <laughs> if you want to call it patching, <laughs> I'd say much stronger words for it. Um, yeah, I'm so being a little facetious if you didn't. <laughs> I, so the... You throw me for a loop, Brian. Thank you very much. <laughs> That's my job. Right. So anyway, FireEye put out a report. Um, they're calling this style of attack the mask attacks. Uh, this is related to last week's article on WireLurker, mm -hmm. which was uh, I think it was Palo Alto and Claude Shao uh, reported that it was possible to use uh, USB and um, enterprise provisioning attacks to push unwanted apps to a phone mm. without having to um, root the phone. Now, it, sh it seems that FireEye has gone the extra step and shown that it's possible to do this over a network. Um, you know, user browses to a website, gets a prompt saying, hey, would you like to install this app? It's still mm -hmm. possible to use that enterprise provisioning to install this app this way. However, here's the fun part. It turns out that when you install an application using enterprise provisioning, it doesn't actually check the certificate for it. What it checks mm -hmm. is uh, a particular identifier. I'm, I'm blanking on the name of it, the bundle identifier. Um, and this is something that every application in iOS is supposed to have. It's something that, you know, from the, the App Store days, every single app was given its very own identifier by Apple, saying, yes, we accept this app, this is mm -hmm. your serial number, you're good to go. Turns out, when you're installing something using enterprise provisioning, um, if you package it with that same bundle identifier, iOS will treat it as the exact same app. So what you can do is, using enterprise provisioning, push a new app to the phone, get the user to accept it, it completely replaces the original app. And that includes, you know, when you click the button on your home screen to go to that app, it will load this other app. That app also has the ability to read files left over from the previous app. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can imagine if this is your banking app, not only can it intercept your login from when, when you type it in, when you're using the application, whatever it also had saved, it also has access to. Right. So this is a complete replacement it's almost like Trojaning, but it's, I, you can see why they call it the mask attack. It's a step more than what we've seen previously where somebody puts in an application that appears to be like one that you already have, this, or, or one that you could already have. Right. This is one that actually literally replaces right. whatever replaces you have. Right over right. the top. Exactly, and it, it apparently can work for any app in the App Store except for the ones that come with the phone. So right. it seems that those are still protected. So you know the upshot of this is that you've got a whole new class of attacks on iOS devices. Mm -hmm. um, the the usual you know recommendations applied don't install things from third-party application stores. Right. But it also includes if you go to a website and it says hey you've got to install this new application, typically don't don't do that. Install from trusted app stores unless you really mm -hmm. really know what you're doing. Right. And so they, I guess uh, if you're looking at this from an enterprise point of view. Uh, where oftentimes applications associated with an enterprise are installed from an you know, an enterprise website, you want to be pretty careful about how that presents to the end users, so that end users understand and have a clear indication that 
they are actually going to the enterprise app store, you know, uh, which is off market, and make sure that that's uh, being protected appropriately, right? Exactly. But when you said something about patching before, that reminded me of one of the aspects that was interesting, is that um, certificates exist on these, some of these applications. They are mm -hmm. signed. Mm -hmm. It's just not being checked properly. So right. when you said something that ought to be patched sometime in the future for iOS, I'm thinking this is going to be one of those things that they're going to go back and make a revision for. So we hope, we certainly hope that they do. Have they, they, do. they, uh, have they committed to doing that at this point? Um, they have not, as far as I know. This has okay. been reported to Apple as a problem, and it, mm -hmm. it remains to be seen what they're going to do about it. Okay. All right. Well, we'll look forward to seeing. The question I had was, uh, is this being exploited in the wild, or is it just kind of fire I figured this out? From my understanding, um, this has not been seen in the wild yet. Wirelurker, okay. which is a cousin to right, it, that, which uses similar mechanisms, has been seen in the yes, wild. Right, but this, right. this, the full exploration that FireEye did, I don't know that they've, they've seen this yet, but I would, <laughs> I would think well, that with the- Now that it's out there, right? Exactly. Right. <laughs> now that it's out there. And, and, and well, it's, I think, a, uh, I guess you could question the reporting process here, but um, certainly recognizing that this issue exists and getting on the path to be able to correct it is a certainly a valuable thing. And, you know, if you're using good security practices in terms of app loading anyway, it really isn't a significant factor, right? All right, good. That was, uh, it's actually, uh, I think, a valuable story. And uh, so let's um, go back to Jim here. And uh, Jim, you know, we've talked a lot about uh, compromised, you know, weakly protected uh, devices connected to the Internet. Um, I guess you could always just, you know, kind of aggregate those together and share them with the world, right? <laughs> yeah, and somebody has finally gone and done that. First noticed this in a post on Tripwire's uh, you know, blog on Friday, but there's a website out there. I don't know if we want to give too much details. It's easy to find, but that has aggregated the info or aggregated feeds from over 73,000 web cameras from around the world, mm. um, and they're all. They've categorized them on this website. You can go to them. You can go by country. Um, you can look you know, uh, various channels. There's these are all web cameras that have uh, default passwords mm. and are uh, internet accessible. You, they've got you know they they claim they've got you know a large number showing living rooms, bedrooms, baby cribs. There's some from military installations. Nothing that you couldn't already find on your own using, you know, Google or Shodan or one of those. But they've now aggregated these all in one place on this on this one website. Not sure exactly what their their purposes were behind this. It's a reminder, and we've talked about it on this program for several years now. You know, the issue of these devices with default passwords. And so to get off of this off of this website, all you have to do is change from the default. But they've found, and as I said, aggregated the, so you can view the feeds from over 73,000 of these. 11,000 plus were from the U.S., uh, over 6,500 from South Korea, 4,700 from China, and so mm. forth. 
Yeah, you know, I guess a couple of things, you know, we we're getting ready for the program here and I didn't do any uh, specific checks on this, but we were questioning whether using a default username and password would be considered a, you know, a, a, an exploit against the device. You know, if, if is it appropriately or sufficiently protected to say this is something that, you know, somebody accessing it using the default username and password, is that considered an unauthorized access to a system? And uh, so there, there perhaps is an opportunity for debate about that. I don't think we know the answer at the moment, but uh, perhaps we can come back and try to uh, provide some insights. Yeah. Uh, we need a lawyer. And so, uh, you know, perhaps we can uh, get it, you know, express an opinion on this topic uh, a little bit later on. Uh, I don't know if it's explicitly uh, or defined or if there's some case law around that. But I, I think that's an interesting question here because this is one where they are actually using a password at that you know, they happen to know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it, I would equate it to take, having a photograph of a key to a door that, to a lock that you don't actually own. Mm -hmm. Like, if everyone knows what this key's you know, configuration is, you know, if you go ahead and cut that key, do you have the right to use it? Yeah, it's a, it's a, I think a very good point. And I'm sure there are counter arguments along those sure. lines as well, is if it's, if it's well known and you haven't taken the appropriate measures to protect a site, is it really an unauthorized access? And, you know, well, is, does it state and because that? Because there are so, so many countries where these are, you know, located, you know, the laws vary wildly Absolutely. from place to place. Too. Yeah, you can imagine that the folks that did this that probably did not do the due dil diligence to see whether they were actually uh, violating the law or not. But in any case, I, I think it's an interesting topic. Uh, probably not, <laughs> I'd venture to say. Uh, I guess the other interest, you'd mentioned Shodan about this and that uh, that information is probably uh, accessible or, or, or at least a good portion of it accessible from a, a Shodan search as well. I think the, uh, it's a, a, an interesting contrast or comparison to say, you know, if you focus it on specifically cameras, and, and I think we had reported on a similar kind of site maybe a year or so yeah, ago, right, so. Jim? Yeah. And uh, we, we talked about it a little bit. I, if I remember correctly, that one actually had a place where you could provide some commentary about, yeah, I saw this or that or the right, other yep. thing. It was kind of like a, uh, your pervs aim this direction <laughs> or something. But uh, in any case, uh, you can imagine that uh, this one would have some, uh, perhaps some particular objectives around it and um, that, that are a little different than our typical security activity. I think the primary reason we wanted to include this story here, and, and by the way, I, uh, Tripwire, I think, is the publisher of the story. I'm not sure if you mentioned that, Jim, but the, um, uh, and this is a case where it, I think, helps to drive home the need to uh, protect sites or protect devices that uh, you might not even think of as needing protection otherwise. And um, the fact that you know somebody can kind of aggregate this and make it accessible just really kind of exacerbates the problem that uh, we otherwise would have considered, uh, you know, maybe a security by obscurity. Who cares about you know this particular device in the middle of nowhere? Yeah, I think yep. that's the big problem, right? You know, a lot of people get these. They go to the computer store. They get one of these appliances. They drop it on their network. They try to get to it from their mom's house or whatever they can't, boom, they open the firewall, oh, I can get mm -hmm. to it now. Yeah, I'm nobody's going to notice that. Yeah, nobody's who's going to find that? Who's going to find that? Right, but and who that's, cares that's about what I think thing, the yeah. point we're driving home is that people will find it. Yeah, it will be found, and not only will it be found, but somebody <laughs> be not, will actually make it more accessible for everybody else that right. didn't know it could be found. So, uh, 
All right, so uh, I guess next item here, we'll uh, go back to you, Matt. And um, sometimes accounts get accessed, even you know, even though it may be um, better protected. Google did a study on it. Tell us. <laughs> they did a pretty cool study, actually. Um, so they're calling this um, manual account harvesting or hijacking, mm -hmm. and it's they, they they sort of caveated it by saying they're not ex interested in you know very you know focused APT style attacks here. Mm -hmm. They're not focused on the the high, the high level automated account credential collection to be used for spamming or something mm -hmm. like that. Those are two very different. This falls somewhere in the middle, um, and to be fair, it only accounts for about 9% of the hijacking that Google has seen in their own metrics, but it's an interesting 90% to actually look at. Mm -hmm. So th these attackers, their modus operandi seems to be use phishing either web forms or emails to collect the credentials, log manually into the account. You know, there's an actual person mm -hmm. at the computer typing the credentials in and hitting enter. And then they try to assess the value of the account. It takes about three minutes because they're probably going through a very large list mm -hmm. and trying to separate the wheat from the chaff, which of these are high value and which of these are not. Now, high value has a couple different meanings. Uh, one is, is there financial information somewhere inside right. the account? Two is, do they have contacts that are valuable? Mm -hmm. uh, three, do they have um, other credentials inside the account? And then the last interesting one was blackmail. So you can see the value of a hijacked account isn't just that you can send things from it. It's that you have a whole identity that you can steal mm -hmm. out of it. And there's lots of ways to monetize that and get advantages over other people. Um, so it seems like um, Google had a couple recommendations for avoiding this sort of thing. Two-factor authentication is a great way to start um, because it makes it very hard for someone to actually steal the full set of credentials if you're using it. Mm -hmm. um, they also strongly suggested you set up a, a recovery mechanism. They said that it was one of the hardest things to deal with in their overall workflow was getting you know, stolen accounts recovered. Because frequently mm -hmm. what attackers will do is they'll take efforts to, if they suspect someone's trying to regain control, they'll set up their own two-factor on the account. They'll say, you can't get back in because you have this code that's coming to some attacker's phone somewhere. Mm -hmm. Or they'll start deleting information from the account to make it useless to you, but once you get it back, all of your contacts are gone. Wow. Yeah. So <laughs> there's a few other good points in there. Um, the, the interesting one to me was that they will use the, the contact information to spam out to other people and use the same exact tactics to try and get their account's information right. Right. because um, they had a statistic. The, the chances of a successful fish jump up by a factor of 36 wow. when they come from an account that's already been attacked. So if I know you, they compromise my account, and I, you send as me to you, mm -hmm. 36 times more likely that you will say, oh, this must be from Matt. Mm -hmm. And you know, fill in your account credentials or, or who knows what they're I guess if for. it's a well-crafted mm -hmm. thing, it, you know, it seems a little strange. I wouldn't expect to receive from you, uh, you know, a validation of my password credentials for a banking site. Right, <laughs> but if, if I was said I was in a foreign country, I was just robbed at knife point and I needed right. some money through Western Union to get home, there's a better chance that you would actually respond to that. Yeah, except that you're sitting on my couch. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> we should hang out more often to prevent these sort of things. That's exactly right. That's so everybody be more physically social instead of uh, internet social, I'm and we'll all be that. a little bit safer for it. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Very good. You know, I guess one of the other things that you mentioned blackmail, and that you know, I've heard of extortion, uh, and you know, using denial of service attack extortion against a business, 
This seems a little more personal. I, did, did they elaborate a little bit on what the uh, blackmail scenarios might be? They didn't, um, but I can only imagine that the, the contents of the individual's email would really dictate what the scenarios right. are, whether yeah. they're compromising photographs, cheating yeah. spouse or something. Right. You know, yeah, I was, like uh, the same things were kind of going through my mind. And it, that's new from my perspective. I had not seen that kind of scenario come up. So mm -hmm. um, that, that's, you know, I can, I can imagine some people getting a little bit nervous about that kind of situation. Definitely. <laughs> okay, so uh, that's a very interesting article. Very good, thank you. Uh, let's take a look at the internet weather for the last week or so here. And the uh, item that came up to the top of the list, and I think, John, you did you report on this last week? or I don't I'm, recall if I'm I did, to be okay. honest with you. I, I don't uh, think so. Perhaps not. Uh, this is actually activity that turned up, and I think it's, in fact, we did discuss this earlier. It started right around the time when you were recording the program last right, week. Right. And so it didn't show up on the radar at that time, but uh, certainly has been taking place for the last week or so here. And we had been reporting, and by the way, this is, a, this is a probes on port 135 TCP. That's endpoint mapper application, which is uh, basically used in, uh, in Microsoft applications for file sharing activities so, and, yeah. and that sort of thing. And that's something you'd normally want to expose to the internet. In fact, a number of ISPs block access to port 135, partly because it has created a lot of security problems in the past. And uh, in many cases, there may be exception processes that you can go through. Uh, that is, I think it blocks uh, inbound access from port to port 135 to a consumer account, for example, in many cases. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, we're showing 120 days of activity here. And the reason I chose 120 days versus just the regular 30 days that we normally look at is because we were reporting on some activity back in late summer, August timeframe, and September timeframe, where we saw somebody that was basically scanning around, and it looked like that they were trying to target uh, basically a particular user account yeah. and basically looking on through the entire internet for this. Uh, this appears to be a little bit different activity that's taking place now, but we certainly see a lot of uh, probing going on here, multiple sources from China and uh, there are some uh, U.S. hosting providers that are contributing to this as well. It, that is, at least in terms of the, uh, the largest amount of activity that's taking place. Uh, and that there are many of these addresses are actually, you know, in the same organization or company. So it suggests perhaps some sort of a systemic problem that might exist that, you know, these devices are compromised and perhaps being used to do this scanning activity in a sort of a botnet way not a whole lot of con contributors, relatively speaking, to the number of probes that we're seeing. And these are fairly aggressive uh, probing activities that are taking place, up around 400 million probes per hour, hour that we're seeing, which is a, uh, you know, a significant proportion of the probing activity overall. And there was, uh, it seemed like a lot of them had a static source port as part of the scanning right. activity. Which is not unusual. That's, uh, we, we see that often, uh, most likely a specialized application yeah. that doesn't use the regular operating system ephemeral port. I think it gives them the opportunity to uh, create, um, to do the scanning a lot more quickly. And if they do get a response, they can go back and do a normal sort of connection right. activity. Yeah, so I was wondering if they might be using like ZMAP or MassScan, one of those kinds Could of be. tools where that just sits there on one port listening on that source port and then they, mm -hmm. they fly yeah, packets out. Off, yeah. And then there's the other guy who just receives. Uh, that also, when I was looking at some of this traffic, I didn't see any of those sources um, kind of completing connections. And uh, like we had with the other stuff, which mm -hmm. makes me also think that it might be a mass scan tool and they're just getting 
who's actually listening, and then they'll come back with a different IP and try yeah. to Likely the do case. something else. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, I did see some connections that were going on in fro from a flow perspective. So, oh, yeah. it's, but it's uh, it's relatively rare. Like I said, a lot of ISPs are blocking this now because it has been associated with a lot of you know worms. I think the Sasser worm actually used this. So, mm -hmm. dating way back to uh, the early 2000s, it became uh, well known as a as a exploit path and um, a, a, you know concern for consumers. So, uh, is generally blocked for consumer accounts. Uh, just taking another look at this uh, little different perspective, this is looking at the scanned sources on port 135 TCP, again looking at the last 120 days, and uh, it is a little concerning that we're seeing a, you know, an uptick or, or basically a steady growth in the number of sources that are doing probing activity on port 135 TCP. So that suggests to me that there's, uh, there's something out there that's propagating uh, where there is uh, some realized benefit in doing this, pr this probing activity and uh, they're continuing to do that. Uh, another sort of curious attribute here is even though we saw over the last week a significant increase in the number of probes, we've seen a decrease in the number of sources doing that probing. Now, one possibility here is that they've basically taken some of the resources, some of the sources that have been identified or compromised in this process and then move them over to some other purpose, and then uh, they're basically have gotten more aggressive with scanning with the uh, re the remaining ones in that uh, in that pool of infected devices. So uh, this suggests perhaps maybe not, or perhaps a, a worm activity building a botnet uh, needs a little more investigation. So clearly, if you have uh, Windows devices in particular, or other devices, uh, Samba servers, for example. Make sure they're not exposed to the internet, and uh, if they are exposed, make sure that you have uh, controls around who can access those. Uh, next item here is scan probes on port 1022 TCP. I'm not exactly sure what this <laughs> what this port is uh, used for. Uh, it's identified in IANA, the uh, uh, Internet Numbers Authority, as a uh, experimental port for alternative numbering for IP addresses and things along those lines. I didn't uh, investigate that in particular, but the, if you uh, look it up, there is uh, basically an RFC associated with that activity, uh, that use. I don't know that this probing is particularly targeting that particular use either. So uh, we, all we know here is that there is probing activity. It's a small number of sources from China. Uh, generally, you know, between one and three addresses, it seems to be moving around if, uh, to originate from different addresses as time goes on. And the motive, as I you know, sort of suggested here, is not exactly clear, but clearly over the last 90 days here, uh, we had basically none of this probing going on, and then uh, around late September, early October, are seeing this spiky sort of behavior. So it doesn't seem to be very systemic. Uh, it's off and on. But certainly if, uh, if you know of or any applications that are using this port, or uh, any idea what the motive might be here. Uh, I'd certainly love to hear from you. Um, as you do know, our uh, email address is threattrack at list.att.com. Next item here is the 10 top most probed ports. And uh, basically looking at the comparison from last week, we see a big increase that is uh, port 443 TCP has jumped up uh, from 27 up to, it looks like fifth here on the uh, list of uh, in terms of prioritization of the, uh, the ports that are being probed. We already talked about port 135 TCP, that's at the top of the list, followed by port 22 and port 23, which uh, we talked about some motives that might be uh, including port 23. Uh, clearly, 
looking for those uh, Internet of Things that uh, have uh, perhaps default passwords or uh, weak passwords associated with them. Uh, followed by port 445. Port 443, we're going to take a little bit of a closer look at that one in a moment here. Port 8080 TCP, followed by port 53 UDP, that's DNS. Port 1433 TCP, that's Microsoft SQL Database. And then uh, last in the top 10 list is uh, 3389 TCP, that's Remote Desktop Protocol. And we did talk about the um, uh, Remote test Desktop Protocol as Jim was uh, uh, discussing the uh, Microsoft uh, patching activities. Next item here is uh, scan probes on port 443 TCP. And as you can see here, although we see that as one of the top 10 most probed ports, and it certainly did grow in terms of comparison, uh, I think it was just really a synchronization item. That is, we're looking at a particular day and comparing it with another day. Uh, there is some regular sort of probing activities taking place on port 443, and uh, I think through the luck of the draw, that basically jumped up in the, in the list to, compared to uh, last week. I wonder, looking at the patterns in those graphs, you have extreme spikes right. matched up roughly with a, a lesser spike, but one of the longer duration. Do you think that suggests two different sets of scanners for the same port? Uh, there's certainly multiple activities going on here. So I think there's some regular sort of uh, interval type scanning that's taking place. And then there are some sort of surges of activity that are taking place in between that. So if just take, for example, looking at this port 1022 activity uh, for comparison, we don't have that regular scanning activity. There are the surges. Mm -hmm. This is a case where we have some regular scanning activity that's taking place. And then within that, there are also surges of activity that are taking place. So it makes it look uh, like a kind of a gobbledygook mess. Mm -hmm. okay. <laughs> Uh, next item here is uh, top 10 most sources probing. And uh, at the top of the list here, we have uh, port 23 TCP. We're going to take a little closer look at that in a moment and how that's, uh, that's evolving over time. And then uh, that's followed by port 445 TCP. Uh, we have uh, port 27015 uh, UDP, uh, which is generally associated with uh, some peer-to-peer -peer gaming activity port 8080 TCP, and then followed by, uh, actually we have a number of ports that are showing ICMP here. Uh, oftentimes these ICMP ports, or actually types, codes, uh, are associated with uh, responses from either uh, denial of service attacks, uh, that sort of activity where, or mass scanning activity, where they're basically getting it administratively design, denied or a timeout or something along those lines in, in the process. So those ICMP port numbers? Are they truly port numbers? They are actually the way uh, the flow data is encoded. This is actually uh, two, 256 times what the uh, the type and any remainder would be the code. Okay. So it, uh, I so normally try to do the arithmetic to do the conversion. The chart. Right, it gets converted over here in the translation. So uh, type threes and uh, we see some type zeros that are occurring here, but it's type threes and then type 11. Good point. Uh, okay, so taking a look at what's been going on with port 23 activity. Uh, I'm only showing 30 days of activity here because it provides a, you know, a more uh, sensationalized story here. But I want to point out as a part of this, if you go back further, there is a large amount of uh, sources or a large number, amount of sources that have been scanning on port 
23 in the past, it went down, and now we're seeing a, basically a climb in activity again here. And I think John perhaps had reported on this a week ago, uh, where we had on the order of maybe about 20 to 25,000 sources that were scanning, identified scanning at a given hour. And uh, since then, that has increased up to around 62 or so at peak. Uh, 62,000 sources that are scanning in a given hour. So I see it perhaps a rebuilding of a botnet activity that's taking place here, um, or perhaps uh, there may be some other motive involved. But uh, it, clearly, there's some botnet behavior involved in this. Uh, we see some, you know, large jumps in the number of sources that are doing probing activity at the same time. Uh, that implies there's a central command and control activity taking place here, and. Uh, suggests that uh, it's a building of a botnet activity that's going on. So that's our show for today. I'd like to thank you for joining us. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at threattrack at list.att.com. And you can find ThreatTrack on the ATT Tech channel. That's att.com slash threattrack. Uh, it's available on YouTube as well as on iTunes as well. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at ATT Security. And I'd like to thank you. Thanks, Jim, online. Thanks, John. Thanks, Matt, for joining us. Appreciate your inputs and conversation each week. I'm Brian Rexrode. We'll be back next week with a new episode. And until then, keep your network safe. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.